Hey everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. It's St. Paul's Letter to the Romans, chapter 3. Let's open your Bibles to that spot. Let's look at verse 25 and 26. And again, we are in the midst of the gospel according to Paul. He's laid out the bad news of life without God, and now he's giving us the good news of the gospel. Now, just before this, in our last episode, and you can get that in the archives at relevantradio.com on the Faith Explained page in the Relevant Radio app. We talked about redemption, and we always hear about redemption in Christ Jesus. And that word to redeem really has to do with ransoming a slave from captivity. And, and as he'll say later in the letter, sometimes we can be slaves to sin, and Christ wants to set us free. But now there's another thing that he introduces here, Paul, in chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, where it says, He's talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. All right, let's stop there and talk about this. Uh, just a little bit. So he talked about the idea of the Exodus, and you know he mentions passing over. That's kind of interesting. But now he really, this idea of expiation, he's really kind of summoning all of his readers to think about the great day of atonement in the Jewish world, Yom Kippur. Now, we can read about Yom Kippur in the book of Leviticus. And this is interesting because now you, you might have heard this in sermons. It's kind of a cheesy preacher line, but it's true. If you look at the word atonement, break that down. It really means at one meant. This is how we get united once again with God after we've sinned. Now, in Leviticus chapter 16, you can read about the institution of the Day of Atonement in uh, verses 1 through 34. I just want to focus in on a little bit of this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is again, Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, don't forget, Aaron was the great high priest. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat, but thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then he talks about the priestly garments and all kinds of other stuff. But it's really interesting when you read on in Leviticus 16, and you can check it out on your own, it says something quite uh, amazing at the end. In verse 23, it says, Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, if you will, the, the priestly vestments of the old covenant. And he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Now, why do I mention that? Because in John chapter 16, when Jesus institutes the Last Supper, the first Mass, he also institutes the priesthood and says, do this to his priests, the apostles, in memory of me. And what happens there in John, in John, in his gospel, he doesn't have the institution narrative, this is my body, this is my blood, 
but he does have the foot washing scene. That's really interesting. And, and this idea of taking off the garments, putting them aside, that's exactly what the high priest does before he makes the great atonement. So this is really interesting because this is Leviticus 16. It's all about the high priest. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm the great high priest and I'm making you priests of the new covenant. It's just absolutely wild stuff. So let's get back now uh, to Romans here as, as he's talking about this in Romans chapter 3. So he uses a couple of, couple of words here. Expiation. He uses the word blood. He also talks about forgiveness. This is all to do with Yom Kippur. And, of course, this kind of started off in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and in in the book of Exodus, you can read about this. And also in Leviticus, obviously. And that's why we had the Exodus series here on The Faith Explained. It's so crucial for understanding uh, what's happening in the New Covenant. And God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle, which is kind of like a mobile temple. Before they built the actual physical temple in Jerusalem, there was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it was kind of a mobile temple, and it was built according to the blueprints of heaven. In other words, the earthly worship is meant to mirror or, or be a copy of what's going on really in heaven. And that's why the tabernacle was designed the way it was. And we have, of course, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Yom Kippur, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. So one day of the year that this happened. Now, maybe you've never heard of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure you have. But it had something on the top called the mercy seat. Now, this was the gold box um, made of acacia wood covered in gold. And and it had on the top, and it contained, of course, the Ten Commandments God gave to Moses on stone tablets, uh, a jar of the manna, and the high priestly staff of Aaron, which miraculously sprouted or budded. And this is, of course, a, a great image of Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant. Uh, it really prefigures that because Mary contained in her body the Ten Commandments made flesh, the Word of God made flesh in Jesus, not on stone tablets, but a person. And of course, he is the true bread of life, gives his flesh and blood to us in the Eucharist, uh, not like the old manna. We also know that Jesus is the great high priest, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews. So Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. But on the on the top of the old Ark was the mercy seat. There were these golden angels, representations of angels that had their wings kind of spread out and in the middle uh, of, on the top of the angel, where the angel's wings are, that was considered to be the mercy seat. Now, if you haven't read the scriptures about this, maybe you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what they're looking for. So this was huge for the Day of Atonement liturgy. And St. Paul understands that this points to something much greater, the atonement that Jesus Christ makes on the cross. And as Scott Hahn points out in his commentary on Romans, The death of Jesus is an act of sacrifice. Just as uh, animals were sacrificed in the temple, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat by Aaron the high priest. These animal offerings that Israel made in the Old Covenant, they have now been superseded. There's no need for them anymore because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. The God-man shed his lifeblood on the cross. And the last thing that he mentions is that Human sin and divine love, he says, made contact in the bleeding and dying of Jesus in such a way that definitive forgiveness is now open to everyone who believes. Now, it's, it's interesting, this whole idea of the mercy seat, 
because that was where the very presence of God rests in the glory cloud uh, above the ark. And it, it's intriguing, too, that really when, when Jesus is on the cross, that's where he's giving out his mercy. The cross is really the throne from which Jesus reigns and dispenses his mercy. And the Romans, I, I don't know if, for sure whether the cross of Jesus had this or not, but one of the things that the Romans would do to make crucifixion even more excruciating, which is a word they had to invent. It means out of the cross. I describe how horrific it is. Sometimes they would put these little seats or these little mini benches, if you will, on the cross to just prolong the death even more. I don't know if the cross of Jesus had that, but if it did, it'd be even more appropriate that he's reigning from this throne of grace and forgiveness on the cross. And what do we get? We get out of this, as St. Paul says, the righteousness of God. Now, what I want to deal with something too that, that Paul says here in verses 25 and, and 26 of, uh, of Romans. In verse 25, Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Does that mean that he left all the sins of the old covenant unpunished? That's not what he means at all. That is, it doesn't mean that God forgot about these things or it wasn't a big deal. But what he did was as Han says, he deferred or held back his judgment until the ultimate atonement could be made by his son. And so God, God is incredibly patient and forbearing with us as well. I'm sure if we look back over our own individual lives, there are times when we deserve to be zapped, but he, he doesn't do that. God always takes the long view of people's lives, and it's his mercy. He gives us more chances. He gives us second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, and it goes on and on. As long as we're still alive and breathing, we have a chance to repent. We, we ought not to take God's grace and mercy for granted. Again, that's the sin of presumption, presuming that God must forgive you, but God's forbearance certainly can't uh, be called into question. All right, so this idea of how God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a very important statement. How does God make us righteous? Well, he's righteous in the way he forgives us, and he also makes us righteous before him. All right, now let, let's look now at the next section here in Romans. And this is really, really important because, again, this is the section that we're going to uh, hear in, in just a moment that really touched off the Protestant Revolution a misunderstanding, and even a doctoring of the scriptures by Martin Luther. Okay, let's look at chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. St. Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So everything that, he, that he's talking about here, as Han mentions, it has to do with, with Jews and Gentiles, with uh, the people of God of the Old Covenant and, and everybody else in, in the world. And he took great pains in the beginning of Romans to show that we're all under the condemnation of sin. Every human being has a sin problem to deal with. And, and 
there's uh, obviously the the Jews have a little bit more information. They have they have not just the natural law, but the divinely revealed supernatural law. But not everybody's lived up to that all the time. Of course, we, we're all sinners and, and, and we, we have a problem. Now he's going to say in this little section here that the way that Jews and Gentiles get right with God, it, it's by the exact same thing. And it's because of faith. Faith is absolutely crucial here when we're looking at this question in Romans chapter 3. Now, faith really, another, another way that we could talk about faith is by talking about trust. Really, faith and trust is, is very much the same thing. It's trusting in what God has done for us in Christ. And, and nobody, nobody deserves this initial justification. That's why he says in verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. And so if, you, if you're going to boast, boast in the forgiveness of God. Now, there, there were always you know, people in the Old Covenant time who would boast about all kinds of things. I think about the, the famous parable of Jesus in the Gospel, about the Pharisee and the publican, you know, where this, this guy is just saying, Lord, have merciful to, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's beating his breast. And the Pharisee is praying. You know, he's kind of up at the front. The other guy's at the back. He, he, he doesn't even feel worthy to come close. But the Pharisee is praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. I, I'm not a... I'm not like this guy in the back here who's clearly a sinner. And, of course, the, the parable ends with the realization that it was the, the, the humble penitent, the publican, who goes home righteous before God because he asked for mercy. Well, the other guy didn't. He kind of boasted in his own self-righteousness. And that it will never, never get us to God because we all fall short, woefully short. It, it's like, who are you to make fun of your neighbor? If you both tried to jump from planet Earth to the moon, you're not going to make it. Now, your friend might be able to jump a little bit higher than you, but not much. And it would be foolish of him to say, I can get closer to the moon than you. You're still light years away, pal. And this is what it's like when we try to boast before God in our own righteousness, because we have an infinite problem. There's an infinite gap between our righteousness and that of God. And the only way it can be bridged is by God himself. So this is why the redemption of Jesus is so important for us. All right. So what what is this faith that that we have to have? Well, th- this is this is the key verse again that was so um, instrumental in the Protestant Revolution. This is verse twenty eight. Paul writes, "For we hold that a man is justified or made right with God by faith apart from the works of the law." Now, Martin Luther, in his own copy of the letter to the Romans, he inserted one word into the text where it says, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He inserted the word alone, by faith alone, apart from works of the law. In his German translation of Romans chapter 3, that's what he did. And some people complained about it. It's like, well, hold on here. That's not what Paul said. That's not in the original text. And Martin Luther said, I don't care. That's essentially what he said. He said, Dr. Luther would have it so. So he doctored the text on his own authority. Now, what's interesting, as you probably know, the only time the New Testament ever uses the term faith alone, where somebody actually writes those words, 
is in the letter of James, chapter 2, verse 24. And by the way, this, this is in a context of a discussion about Abraham, and Paul's going to talk about Abraham as our father in faith in the very next chapter of Romans, but I digress. Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 24. He writes, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how about that? So, by the way, the, the whole context here is about Abraham. And let me just read what James says. Let me just read it in context here. And it starts with James chapter 2, verse 14. James writes, What is a prophet, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works or deeds? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And here's verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on to say in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So this is really, really important when it comes to our understanding of how we are justified, how we are made right with God. So that no one deserves the grace of initial justification or forgiveness. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. All of us are sinners and lawbreakers at one level or another. But then what happens is God extends his forgiveness. But then what happens? Are we just good to go? Do we have an automatic ticket into heaven? No, we then have to participate with God. We have to ratify that trust by the way that we live our life. And so if we truly have faith, it will be working itself out in the way that we live our life. And so this is really, really important, but nobody can get there without faith. And so Han says, really, the primacy of faith is what's important here. And uh, I always like to use the example of a law firm where you, there's a major partner and a minor partner. God is the major partner here. He is footing the bill. He's paid for it on the cross. And what he does is he, in a sense, finances the operation. He gives you the grace that you need to continue on in your operations by participating with his grace, having that work out in deeds that grow from our trust in him. And that's why he says in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one and he will justify the circumcised, the Jews, on the ground of their faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through their faith. Do we, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So everybody's kind of on the same level when it comes to faith. And we're going to see how that really plays out in the life of Abraham, our father in faith, 
And Paul is going to be, I think, at his most brilliant in the letter to the Romans in this next little section. So I hope you'll join me for that in the next episode. But hey, we're not done here yet. I've got to open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag right now. Okay, so today's question comes to us from Roger, who's listening in Manhattan on the Relevant Radio app in New York City. How about that? And if you have a question for the Faith Explained mailbag, you can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can also try tweeting at me if you are on Twitter. You can follow me at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. All right, so Roger asks, uh, Kale, how is it that the priesthood of Aaron is similar to the new covenant priesthood in Jesus Christ? That's a really good question, Roger. And First of all, there's a hierarchy. That's one way in which the priesthood in the New Covenant is similar to that of the Old. So we we have this threefold, uh, three degrees of holy orders, if you will. There are deacons, priests, and bishops in the Catholic Church. And if you ever had one of those lamps where you turn turn the knob or, or you know you pull the string or whatever, and it gets brighter each time. So there's a one click, you know, one setting. It's bright. Setting two is even brighter. Setting three is the max. That may be a crude illustration, but this is this is the, really what the three degrees of holy orders in the new covenant are all about. Because a deacon has certain uh, privileges, if you will, and certain gifts through his ordination to to be configured to Christ the servant. And of course, every priest before they become a priest, they also have to be a deacon first. So. A uh, candidate for the priesthood becomes a deacon. Some months later, usually, uh, that man is ordained as a priest. So when that happens, it's like turning up another notch. And God gives that man more gifts to be configured to Christ the priest. He's now able to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. He's now able to forgive sins in the name of Christ in the sacrament of confession. Uh, things like that. And then, of course, the bishopric, the office of bishop, the episcopacy, that is, of course, the highest degree of holy orders. And, and in the early church, there were only bishops. There were the apostles, and they ordained the bishops. But, of course, the bishop couldn't be everywhere at once, so there was a need for priests or presbyters, and they are mentioned in the New Covenant. And so what happens is the bishop shares some of his powers with the priests and with the deacons that he ordains as well, so that... Uh, the healing touch of Christ and, and Christ the servant can be present uh, in more places. But we as the baptized also share in the priesthood of Christ, and I'll talk about that in just a second. So both of them were hi- hierarchical, if you will. Both priesthoods had to deal with the sacred scriptures and, and teach and preach. Both had to offer sacrifices. Now, of course, there were the multitudes of animal sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and later on in the temple in the Old Covenant. There's the one perfect, unbloody sacrifice of the Mass that happens, which is essentially the the one perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross on Calvary, and we are being made present to it. And that one sacrifice, uh, we're able to access the grace from that uh, at the Mass. And just like there was a high priest, of course, uh, in the Old Covenant, we have a sort of high priest in the Pope, the office of the papacy. We'll have to talk about that uh, another time. It's interesting as well, though, too, in the New Covenant, 
We, we have, of course, Gentile priests, and there are Hebrew Catholics as well. Some of them, no doubt, are ordained priests and, and bishops. But this is something that was prophesied by Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 21, it says this, I will take some of them, and these are Gentiles, I will take some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So this was something that was foreseen even in the Old Covenant, that one day, God would make priests even out of some of the Gentiles. How about that? So again, there's, there's really two priesthoods in the Catholic Church. There's the baptismal priesthood that we all share. And then there is, of course, this ministerial priesthood. And that's exactly what it was like in ancient Israel. Another similarity, they were called a kingdom of priests. We've seen this in the book of Exodus, a kingdom of priests. But yet there was this one group, Aaron and his sons and the Levites, that were specifically designated for these sacred duties in the tabernacle, in the temple. And that's exactly what we have in the Catholic Church as well. We have a ministerial priesthood within the priesthood of all believers. And that, that's what it's all about. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this in paragraph 1547. It says that the priesthood is actually supposed to serve everybody else, all the baptized. The unfolding of the baptismal grace of all Christians. You know, the Pope, one of his favorite titles, and this is true of every Pope, is Servus Servorum Dei, which means the servant of the servants of God. So leadership in the church is an inverted pyramid. You could say really the Pope's at the bottom, and he's he's trying to serve billions of people literally above him. And so descending into greatness, just as Jesus descended from heaven, took on the nature of a servant, submitted to death on the cross. When someone becomes a priest, it is a vocation to serve, not to lord it over people, but to serve them, to serve the people of God through the sacraments, through their preaching, through their teaching, and really be a father to the people. Just as a human father, he supports his family, he teaches them, he protects them from evil. This is what our priests, our spiritual fathers, really need to do. And this is something that uh, is talked about by St. Paul uh, in the New Testament. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus in the gospel. And he also said this in his letter to the Romans. He actually mentions the term priest. He says that he's in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, may be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's in Romans chapter 15 verse 16. So Christ is the one priest, and he simply shares his priesthood with some men in the church so that uh, we might receive these graces from him. That's the way he set it up. So if you have an issue with it, talk to God. <laughs> I don't make the rules, but I do I, I do try to answer questions as best I can. So Roger, hopefully that uh, that was an adequate answer for you. And if not, I'd encourage you to Keep doing your research, keep learning, and that's what we're doing together on the Faith Explained program. We are learning the Catholic faith together so that we might live it out better, be better disciples of Jesus Christ. So once again, uh, you can send your question. If you have a question for the Q&A mailbag, send it to faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Now, of course, you can use... Uh, the old way, it's like a, like a telegram. You can actually mail your question to the relevant radio offices. Uh, just uh, label it to the Faith Explained program. 
and you can look up the address on relevantradio.com. But again, the easiest thing to do is probably just email faith at relevantradio.com or follow me on Twitter, and you can send me a message there as well. Tweet at me, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And we'll be back 23 and a half hours from now with another episode of The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. And I'll be back with you later today live on The Kale Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, once again, only here on Relevant Radio.